Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Matea reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Hey, it's Matea Roach and this is The Backbench. Our team recently got back from going on a little tour of Western Canada. We hit up Vancouver and Whitehorse for two amazing live events. And today on the feed, we're bringing you the show that we put on with the Vancouver International Film Festival at the famous or infamous, depending on who you ask, Rio Theatre in Vancouver on October 3rd. But first... It's crowdfunding season here at Canada Land. And I'm sure you all know this, but supporting journalism is more important than ever. Journalism is in crisis, people. And we need your help to continue bringing you this show and taking things to the next level. And to show you just how much your support made possible, we want to share with you some of the things that we were able to do this year because of those of you who choose to give us your money. In early October, we had the chance to go to the west coast of Canada, a place I have actually never been before. And it was a dream of ours last year when we put on our show in Toronto to take this show on wheels and bring it right to your doorsteps. So we ended up going to Vancouver and putting on a live show with the Vancouver International Film Festival at the Rio Theatre, and it was an incredible night We also ended up going to Whitehorse. And in Whitehorse, we got to hear from three amazing powerhouses who are all involved in governance um, and Indigenous governance in their own ways. And we got to really learn and do a deep dive on the history of Indigenous governance in the Yukon. And I think the rest of Canada can really learn a lot um, based on that discussion. We're so excited to bring that to you in the coming weeks. One thing that was super cool about us being able to take the show on the road is we were able to connect with so many listeners that are not in the Toronto, you know, Quebec City, Windsor corridor, let's call it the Southern Ontario and (laughs) Quebec bubble. Um, Special shout out to the biggest backbench stand of Whitehorse, Kelly Proudfoot, who we were so excited to meet. People like Kelly really are so important to like getting the word out about our show. Thank you, our major stan. And there's another really exciting live event happening this very week on Thursday, October 19th at Hot Docs. You get to see all of the Candleland hosts and be part of the whole Candleland community if you want to come out and see that. Supporters get a discount, so you should really, really consider supporting us. And aside from the critical news and analysis that we bring to you every two weeks, your support actually made it possible for us to bring you even closer to the stories that we chose to unpack. For example, you'll get to hear a bonus episode from our live show. It's a conversation between Matea and Corinne Lee, who runs and operates the Rio Theater in Vancouver. And we end up talking about the ways that monopolistic giants are uprooting entire independent theater communities. We've been bringing you bonus content all year. From our bonus episode, bringing you our unfiltered thoughts on the Gen Z generation and how we engage in politics, we got to bring you a really cool video of the Dominion Caroliner playing the Carillon um, on Parliament Hill. 
We also unpacked the censorship of LGBTQ plus content here in Canada. But there are a few things that are really just perks of being our supporters. For one, you get access to our supporter newsletter, duly noted. You get to see behind-the-scenes content of us doing, I don't know, random shit, like videos and photos of us in Whitehorse in Vancouver. Guys, it was really fun, and I am sure you want to see what we were up to. And we also have really, really cool merch. It's very cool to be walking around with a Canada Land tote. I actually spotted Matea on my way home on a streetcar on Queen Street holding their Canada Land tote. And I knew right away, that is one cool ass person. I'm not even kidding. I got stopped on the street in Los Angeles, a real city, uh, <laughs> carrying the candle and tote bag by somebody who was like, that is the coolest tote bag I've ever seen. Like, I'm actually not making this up. These are internationally famous tote bags, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and we have really cool special limited edition merch for our 10-year anniversary. I just saw a preview of it. It's actually so, so cool. Gray t-shirts, hoodies. And I got the chance to take a few pictures in the in the hoodie. And guys, that is one comfortable hoodie. It's about to be sweater weather, guys. Like, you should take this seriously. I don't know about you, but like when I, for the most part, am reading the news, watching the news, listening to news, there are so many times that I find myself just absolutely shaking my head at the kind of coverage that I see being done by... I'm not going to name names, but like we've all at least once watched a TV segment where we were like, now I know that they're just not getting to the bottom of what's going on here. I know that there has to be a better take on this. We really, really are endeavoring on this show to bring you analysis of Canadian politics from voices that you're not going to hear on other politics shows. And I think we've been doing a pretty good job of it so far, but we absolutely cannot do this work without you. We need to pay our guests. We need to pay ourselves. We need to be able to go out on the ground, roaming around, finding stories for you that are related to federal politics in this country. This work has never been more important and also has never been more financially difficult for journalistic organizations to do. Thank you so, so much to those of you who already are supporters. You've heard this pitch a bunch of times and you've already bought in. For that, we cannot thank you enough. For those of you who haven't yet been convinced, for the price of like one coffee a month, you can be supporting journalism and making sure that stories don't get left unbroken. Go to candleland.com slash join. We promise we will make good use of any money you decide to give us. So backbench on wheels 2.0? Hmm. We might be plotting and scheming. If there are cities that you want us to visit, please send us where you are. If there are places you want us to go visit, if you have backbench mania and want to see the backbench in your city, please tell us. We would love to come visit you. And now here's our show. Let's get into it. I don't actually know how many like big backbench heads we have in the crowd or how many people are just here for this event and because it's part of VIF. But if you have not heard an episode of the backbench before, it usually starts something like this. Hey, it's Matea Roach, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and me aggressively passing judgment on your letterboxed four faves. And if you don't know what I'm talking about when I say letterboxed four faves, I'm judging you even more. So today, what we're going to talk about is, first of all, the very sexy, very exciting Bill C-11, the online streaming act, which has been even more controversial than that one time that Martin Scorsese said that Marvel movies are not cinema. He was right, and he's been being crucified ever since. Um, And then secondly, as I alluded to earlier, the WGA strike in Hollywood has come to an end, but SAG-AFTRA is still on strike. What does this have to do with Canada? Actually, like, more than you might think. Uh, So joining me this week on stage, we have uh, down at the end of our row, (laughs) I guess you're pouring water, maybe I'll go the other way, (laughs) close to me, uh, I feel like just a guess, uh, this might be a cooler audience than when you testified at the Senate building, I don't know, the train station, I'm not sure who's in the gallery, we have the chair of the Black Screen Office, he's a producer and more, Hayden Wazell. We have next over, she's an industry veteran. She's been a lawyer, a producer, and a director. Karen Lamb, thank you for joining us. 
Next down the line, he has spent five years defending freedom of expression and is now the campaign director at Open Media, defending the right to open, accessible, and surveillance-free internet. We have Matt Hatfield. And now that he is not pouring his water, we have a Vancouver-based screenwriter and showrunner, renowned for his deft balance of comedy and the macabre, Dennis Heaton. So I'm still bamboozled at how many people want to hear us talk about Bill C-11, but it's important. Let's get into it. So the Online Streaming Act has passed, but has not yet taken regulatory effect. Uh, It's going to be a few years before we really see how this bill plays out sort of in action. But I want to give us a moment to sort of really understand what this contention is all about. And excitingly, there's actually been some updates to how Bill C-11 is going to be implemented in regulation, literally like yesterday. So it's a good time for us to be having this conversation. Uh, So Matt, I want to start with you because you're our most policy-focused guy on the panel. What were the proposed objectives of the Online Streaming Act? Like, what is the government saying it is trying to do here? I guess kind of in its words. So Bill C-11 is supposed to be about updating the Broadcasting Act for the internet age. So about 25 years ago, the CRDC looked at the internet, said, hey, that's cool. It's interesting. I hope it goes well for you. We're not going to try to regulate this thing. Let's just see what happens. And what's happened is the majority of audiovisual content that people consume now passes through internet channels. Obviously, for the people that historically have depended upon the way the Broadcasting Act works, that's pretty alarming because that whole system is crumbling to some degree. And so the CRTC is kind of going from a a world in which they do almost no regulation of anything on the internet to a world in which they might do a huge amount of regulation of a lot of things on the internet. And sort of the fight over Bill C-11 has been about how far are they going to go? What do they say they're going to do? What are they actually going to do? And different people have had different opinions on, on how that's played out. So for those of our listeners or those audience members who may not be super familiar with the Broadcasting Act, what were the aims and objectives of that? Because you're right, this is sort of an amendment to existing legislation that we all sort of know and accept for other kinds of media, from what I understand. Yeah, exactly. So it's hard for us to remember in the internet age, but before the internet, there were very few options to actually decide what you were going to see in audiovisual media. And at that time, the fear, the correct fear, I think, was that if we didn't have some kind of um, fairly intense system from the CRTC defining what should be on Canadian airwaves, it would just be flooded with American content. Not because American content was better, but because it was very cheap and people would just buy it in Canada and redistribute. And the thought there was that we won't have a Canadian production industry, we won't have a Canadian storytelling in our audiovisual media. And so the traditional aims of the Broadcasting Act were a whole system around supporting that. And now uh, they're trying to apply quite a bit of that in the next few years to the internet, which is alarming to civil libertarians like myself. So I guess the notion then with implementing this bill or proposing it was that the sort of same issues that were considered to be problems back when the Broadcasting Act was being implemented in terms of like Canadian music not getting airplay, Canadians not watching Canadian TV shows, et cetera. Same thing is happening, I suppose, in the internet age. I guess, Hayden, from your perspective, because you've been involved with certain, like you've gone to testify at the Senate, you've been involved somewhat in the policy side of this. Like is the core issue now with the Online Streaming Act, is it sort of the same core fears? Like how are those concerns about American dominance, I assume that's mainly what people are worried about, like manifesting in the internet age. Yeah, I I would agree that a lot of those core fears are still the same. I would also add that one of the goals of uh, the Broadcasting Act is to also create an avenue to continue to support and ensure what we would probably call a, a Canadian identity or culture as well. At the end of the day, we're all still delivering a lot of the same content. We've just changed the tool. As Matt's alluded to, it's going through the internet now. But I think when you really look at its core, uh, particularly when we're talking about broadcasting, not much has changed in that they're still very much so functioning on uh, subscription-based models and advertising uh, models to generate revenue. If you want to dive into you know, why you think this might be an important thing to do, that's fantastic. Well, I think ultimately, at the end of the day, we're in a situation where, to our South, our amazing cousins, and I mean that, I say that very genuinely, it's a very large country, they're 10 times the size of ours, and they have an incredibly powerful media industry, and their culture permeates globally. And I think ultimately, if as Canadians, we think that our culture and identity is important and unique to us, it's, I think, critical that we empower Canadian storytellers and companies to ensure that their perspective is um, being told and our stories are being told by Canadians. 
I think once we start to lose that perspective, because okay, I think ultimately if we were to look in this room and if half of the room were Americans and half of the room were Canadians, by looking at us, we wouldn't necessarily be able to tell who was American and who was Canadian. But once we started talking and really getting into the heart of who we are as people and start sharing ideas and, and themes and our wants, needs, dreams and desires, it's pretty clear that there's a distinct difference between our two nations and our two cultures. And that is expressed in our art and in our creative and in, our, in the way that we tell stories. And the Broadcasting Act endeavors to allow that to continue and ultimately get into the homes of our families and our children. In terms of like the specific benefits of having more regulatory oversight, because I think that this is part of the discussion, right, is I don't think that the case against uh, the Online Streaming Act is necessarily in opposition to the idea of like there's no Canadian identity, although some people would say that. But I think that there's like a question of what's the appropriate mechanism uh, to sort of ensure that there is a thriving Canadian industry. For anybody else on the panel, I know, Matt, you're sort of our kind of skeptical voice when it comes to this legislation. Dennis and Karen, like in terms of why this specific mechanism, like do you have have sort of positive feelings towards it as creators, negative feelings, neutral, don't care? Like, what, what's been the temperature kind of in your circles? Can we have both? Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. <laughs> okay, Tell great. us about it. Awesome. I mean, for me, the... You know, I agree completely with what Hayden's talking about in terms of Canadian identity through to- storytelling. And for me, the CRTC has always represented a social contract with our broadcasters. And what that social contract was, was the government would protect Canadian telecoms from American telecoms wanting to come in and take over the airwaves. In exchange, they would produce CanCon. They would produce shows of Canadian national interest. PNI is a slang term we use for it. And as long as the telecoms have been regulated by the CRTC, their attitude has been, what if we don't? And their preference would be to not have to create Canadian content in order to maintain their licenses. I'm talking primarily about the private telecoms, not the CBC. That's an entirely different beast, which is an entirely different show. So, you know, in terms of what the CRTC and, you know, represents to me historically, is this methodology to perpetuate the opportunity for Canadians to tell Canadian stories, for Canadian filmmakers to make Canadian films and show them to Canadians, Canadian television shows, all of that kind of stuff. So for me, that's the intended positive because what the purpose of C, you know, originally C10 and then C11 was supposed to do is to bring the big players to heel. And we're talking about the Netflixes, the Disney Pluses, the Paramount Pluses, the big U.S. streamers who scrape millions of dollars out of this country and don't put anything back into the creative voice. So that's been definitely the intention, as I think that this is a piece of legislation that when you hear the government speak about it, it's in relation to your Netflix, your sort of like large, powerful, you know, hundreds of millions to billions of dollars like type corporations. But I know, Matt, you are sort of the skeptic when it comes to regulatory oversight what are the potential cons? Because we saw yesterday there was an announcement talking about like podcasts. It's not going to affect necessarily as many things as people initially anticipated. It's like if you're a podcast company or like produce podcasts in some way and they earn over $10 million a year, then you're going to have to register and then that will involve being subject to regulations. The idea is the government so far has said we're not going to come for small creators. But my understanding is they have the power to kind of like the, the CRTC has the power to sort of change their mind on that. Do they not? Yeah, I mean, this not so much the CRTC as the government. So the government issues uh, a policy direction uh, to the CRTC on how to enforce Bill C-11. And that was the one of the main positive developments in our view on the bill throughout this process is they did issue a policy direction or they've, they've done a draft policy direction saying, please respect user choice and uh, please don't interfere with user content. They didn't put that in the law. So a policy direction can be changed at any time by any future government. As, as a liberties group, that concerns us. A, a different government can make a different decision. And, the, and for a very long time, the government told people user content's not regulated or, or you as a person are not regulated. Let's ignore the fact that your content can be regulated. The reality is the bill does allow for user content to be regulated. They've sort of half fixed it with the policy direction, but we could see that used in the future. And the big change we've seen from the CRTC recently is them showing that they're quite interested in using the full scope 
of their broadcasting regulatory power through this bill. So they're saying we're going to look at podcasts and we want to make sure that podcasts are representing the full spectrum of our broadcasting objectives. Podcasts need to be showing that they're providing English and French content. Podcasts need to be showing that they're providing uh, a diversity of, of viewpoint in the CRTC's view. Uh, and that's that's alarming. That's a creep into things that they're not necessarily a censorship regime, but they could certainly affect the access to information and expression of Canadians. Mm-hmm. Why is that a problem? Like, why 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 would that be a problem? Other than like, you're you're looking at, in a lot of ways, just reflecting back what Canadians, you know, what the Broadcast Act says. Yeah. So that gets back to the different situation with each, though, right? Like, so in the traditional system, it was so narrow in any context, you were only going to get a tiny slice of content in any context under the traditional system. On the internet, anyone can put their voice out if they want to. And on the internet, it's not just what we might think of as Canadian creators who are there, it's all of us. And so if the CRTC is telling us they have the power to do, they can create any audiovisual content on the whole internet uh, as quote-unquote broadcasting content, I don't think ordinary people expect to see their posts have, say, broadcasting decency standards applied to them. And that I don't think that will happen this year or next year. But technically, there is a power there that could be applied in the future. And, and I think, if you don't mind, I think that what you're saying is, is correct. And, and I think you're saying user content, and I think you're meaning user-generated content. And, and I think ultimately, the legislation's intention is primarily to capture and bring the platforms that these users are using as means to distribute, some may dare say, broadcast. And they're trying to give themselves the flexibility as what we've already seen with the existing Broadcasting Act, which is they can't predict the future. They don't know what's going to happen. So rather than sort of write a law that would prevent them from potentially being able, or future governments being able to adapt more quickly and more succinctly, they've left it a bit open. And, and I agree that, that that does create concerns for people who primarily fo- whose businesses, and some businesses can get quite large, who primarily do business in a user-generated content uh, stream. But the hope is, is that it will primarily, the intention is that it will capture people who, or, or people who are uploading content that was previously broadcast over traditional means would continue to fall under the regulation. And to be clear, like regulating that doesn't bother me at all. The concern is that because they're afraid of loopholes and if somehow the platforms are going to trick them and sneak some content in some way, they have written a bill that's so broad and it looks like the CRTC is continuing to maintain such a broad scope that there is a risk of unintended consequences today uh, cropping up in the future. The platforms will trick them. The platforms will figure out ways to slip things in. They've got the best lawyers in the world, much better than our government's lawyers by far because they get paid substantially more dollars to figure out how to trick government lawyers. I can't believe we're talking about big business trying to get around regulation. I'm, I'm so surprised. I'm, what, this I'm, is the I'm first stunned. time I'm hearing about this. Like, these are, no. these are businessmen they, we're talking they're, about. They're, they're people of honor. They would never do something like this. And I think this is a common issue. Like, There's been a package of sort of digital legislation that the government's been rolling out. There's been this. There was C-18, which was the Online News Act, which also, I think, was sort of written in a way where it was perhaps overbroad and then like sort of unlike C11, which has yet to do much of anything yet, like it hasn't been implemented in a way where the average person has seen much of an impact. Uh, C18, like we all lost our news on Instagram and Facebook as a result of the government just kind of like not really thinking through the consequences of its legislation. So I think it makes sense to be skeptical. I'm like just skeptical of any digital legislation I see coming out of government, frankly, because it's such a difficult needle to thread sort of how to write legislation that's not immediately outdated while also not writing it in a way that's over capacious. If I can add on to that, so the similar issue that could occur under C11, and we don't know yet whether it will, would be sort of small to medium-sized streaming companies who don't really do much business in Canada, happen to do enough that they might qualify. They, they could choose to just stop out of this, be like, we don't want to deal with this, it's complex, it's uncertain, we're blocking Canada. And that wouldn't necessarily affect a huge number of Canadians, because maybe most people aren't using their services, but it could have a really important impact on the people it does. So I'm thinking about diaspora communities that are accessing a streaming platform from home. Uh, we don't, never want to see them blocked. And we encourage the CRTC to set a high threshold to make sure it was only the Netflixes and Spotify's captured. They won't do it. I think the floor right now, that is propo- or the proposed floor, is $10 million per uh, year in annual revenue. In Canada. That's the C11 situation. C11 situation. Right. And so that's like, 
C eighteen and C eleven are two entirely. Oh, they're two different. different Absolutely, no, different. just to make sure things. that we're, uh, yeah. no, we're, we're all talking clear. about the, the same thing. Yeah, yeah. but, it, but yeah. there. But I wouldn't be surprised if there's some relationship as far as. Um, big tech companies flexing their muscles as potentially, as Matt's alluded to, here's what could happen if you also go down this road. Because there is something to be said for, let's say, the issue I think you're largely referring to is Facebook and they're not allowing people to repost news onto their platform. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Um, um, I I don't want to get my news from Twitter because it is the apocalypse. That's what I mean. Like, that's that's the thing, right? I believe you're referring to X. Yeah, oh. the but, website formerly known as Twitter. But Facebook has also dabbled in original content. All of these platforms have all dabbled in original content. And I, I think that's some of the reason why C11 is looking for some of that flexibility as they just don't know what's coming. And I, I do think that Facebook has, has been flexing their muscles a little bit. Like, watch out. It's not like we don't have a monopoly problem in Canada based on what, what Corinne just said yeah. and uh, what's happening on Facebook and X or whatever. You know, it's like, it's the Zuckerberg, Elon Musk show. So honestly, if fight, you break it up, fight, who cares? Fight, fight, fight. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually just want to jump in because we've been talking a lot, I think, about okay, platforms, regulation, you know, where people are getting their content, sort of also talking a little bit about the differences between, you know, your large streaming services versus your smaller things, whether that's like channels that are catering to diasporas, whether that's specialty services, you know, like your shutter, your like criterion channel, that sort of thing. I want to talk a little bit about how this legislation might affect the production side of things. Cause we've talked a bit about the consumption side. I want to talk about production side. We have some production folks uh, in the room with us. So one thing that I've seen sort of made as an argument in favor of this new legislation is basically saying like, okay, in the same way that the existing Broadcasting Act sort of ensures or provides a framework for, say, indigenous creators or minority language creators to be able to make stuff because it's like more likely that they'll be able to get it to air somewhere, this legislation is sort of expanding the scope of how that can happen. You know, I'm not interested to hear if you folks uh, agree, disagree with that, how you see this legislation affecting what sorts of stuff gets made, whether it provides maybe new opportunities for people to access funding, access platforms, or whether it might actually kind of, as Matt was alluding to, constrict people's ability to produce content on their own. Is there going to be actually funding for basically, like basically if they're going to be charging Netflix and, you know, all the streaming services an extra carriage fee of some sort, that money should probably go into some sort of pool. And if it gets spread out, then yes, we would love that money. Thank you. Well, that's, that's, I mean, essentially, you know, what the Writers Guild wants is for, you know, the streamers like Netflix and Disney Plus to be paying into the CMF the way the traditional broadcasters have been paying in. Right now in Canada, I think there's like two and a half channels you can pitch a show to, and that's it. So, you know, you can fly to Toronto and and get all your pitches done in an afternoon and, you know, be back at the airport and totally depressed by the end of the day. Well, because that's Um, because they don't like us there. They're the center of excellence, you know. I know. That's another show. By bringing the streamers on board and saying, you know, it's great, and it has been good that they have been putting money into the Canadian system in some ways, but most of that's been straight into production. Canadian crews, our fantastic crews, have been working on shows, but it's not necessarily the Canadian creators, the writers, producers, directors, who are getting involved in that material, right? Like Netflix, you know, you go back to when Melanie Jolie was in charge of Heritage, and she was crowing about the $500 million deal she made with Netflix about spending money in Canada, most of that money went to uh, service production. Well, this is because they're treating us like a factory. And they've always treated us like a factory. Basically, we've been trying it all like on all levels to basically have more Canadian ownership of our stories, of the companies, of what we're actually doing, because otherwise we're literally just um, producing sausages for them. And they've blown... Good sausage. Good Good sausage, sausage. sausage. absolutely. And they've blown well past that $500 million number, which is their argument, which is their, which is the concern that they have. I think C11's goals of creating more opportunities for underrepresented communities, ensuring that indigenous content creators and storytellers have access to funds is great. You know, talking about the CMF, I think that's going to be really interesting. Right now, um, I think in a couple, let's say five weeks, six weeks, the CRTC will be meeting and a big part of that discussion or, or taking or, or having hearings, a big part of those hearings will be about 
um, getting input from the community about how should we spend potentially any new monies that come into the system. And yeah, there's a strong push, particularly when it comes to uh, the film and television community, or at least the conversation is around the, the idea is the streamers take from the system, now it's time for them to pay back into the system, and the current vehicle in place to do that is the Canada Media Fund. However, as we've all been talking about this evening, you've got this sort of capitalist machine that is effectively going to have to figure out how to fit their business model, their global business model, into taking 5% of their revenues in our country, which is a, sub a substantial number, and then putting it into a government bureaucracy, a big government bureaucracy, to then distribute among the people. Now, this is gonna be, I think, is yet to be seen. And to see how that's gonna work out, I think is gonna be an, an incredible challenge. If I can say, I think a key question that we just don't have a clear answer to is who gets to tell a Canadian story? So the CRDC has chosen to put the question of revisiting CanCon last in its consideration process of C11. To me, as an ordinary Canadian, that seems like a really salient, important question. And I, I've heard from some people saying, historically, it's actually been very difficult for them, although they're a Canadian creator for various reasons. Some people have really struggled to access that funding. We, we worry a little bit that people who create primarily for digital-first platforms are going to struggle, even if they are Canadian, to access this funding. And we could see money sort of drained out of some of these, these online systems um, for the traditional system, which we're not against Canadian creators getting supported, but it should be an equitable, fair system that everyone can get into. I think that's a great point. Like, where where is the money going to go? And, like, the way it works historically with the CMF is, you know, the money goes from the broadcasters into the CMF, and then it goes back to the you know, productions that the broadcasters are greenlighting. So it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a closed ecosystem, right? And, you know, the streamer money that would come in would be great. And, you know, I think, I think there needs to be a reevaluation of how that system works, because in answer to your question, who gets to tell Canadian stories, I think the only right answer is as many people as humanly possible. I completely hear here. I agree with that completely. And I'd also say that closed ecosystem has effectively functioned as as gatekeepers to underrepresented voices getting access to that system. You know, particularly, and, and just because I live in BC, it's incredibly challenging when you're living in BC because most of those gatekeepers happen to live in Ontario and Quebec in particular. So it becomes even more challenging when we're talking about how do we access those resources to tell stories. But I completely agree. I think Anyone that wants to tell a Canadian story should be able to tell a Canadian story, whether they're from Canada or not, as long as they do the work and they're telling the story authentically. And they're actually making sure that they're engaging with the communities that they're trying to tell stories by. Now, are there certain stories that will be better told or already in development by members of certain communities that would be much better served by partnerships or co-productions with those communities than just, absolutely. I think a lot of stories would be much better served um, if, if they went down those paths, for sure. All right. Well, one final question to round out this sort of segment of the conversation. I guess I want to circle back to policy since that was the main kind of original focus of our conversation today. How do you all think we can kind of balance the establishment of internet governance policies while also doing this sort of cultural preservation I think it sounds as though, based on how sort of the CMF has worked historically, even if this results in us getting more money from streamers through like whatever you know money they have to pay back to the government, it's not really a guarantee that it ends up going to any more diverse creators. I don't know. What do you guys see as a way forward? What do you hope to see? Because this legislation is in place. Yeah. What are your hopes and dreams for the future of it? I've been astonished that the government seems unwilling to accept getting 80 or 90% of what they were aiming for and tolerating a loophole or two. I think if we went through five years of a loophole and then we can have some subsequent le legislation to knock down some little way of getting in that platforms find of uh, evading the system, that might be okay. And, and yes, it is future-proofing to a fair degree. I don't think it's necessarily an intent to create a censorship regime, but they have pushed so hard almost every time for as expansive a set of power as possible. And I don't think they're sensitive to both the unreasonable fears that gives people, but also the reasonable concerns that gives people about what could go wrong in the future and about what the CRDC might do, as we're finding it's now looking, with a very bullheaded, in my view, but a very logical from the perspective perspective of like, we have the Broadcasting Act. The Broadcasting Act says all kinds of things about many different values we should be enforcing on content within our, our purview. And it turns out most audiovisual content on the internet is now within our purview. Let's go broadcasting act this up. 
And that's very alarming to me. That That is creating the risk of them gradually creeping into a type of interference with Canadian speech that I don't think is the intention of the government or even necessarily of the CRTC, but it could come for us anyway. So I guess your your wish for the future, if I'm understanding correctly, is kind of walking back some of that overbroadness. Yeah. Set a few limits, and if industry does find weird ways of evading it, fix those later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, close the loophole after someone's found it, and not you know create like a, a very capacious regu- regulatory regime. What about everybody else on the panel? Like, I'm interested to hear from those of you that are involved in the creative side of things. Like, what what do you hope this will do for you, for your projects, for people that you know through work? Just more money, please. <laughs> yeah. No, I I think the the hope and the goal is that it'll create an opportunity for good business. The reality is, is that what we're seeing, and I think if anything, the last um, two years and particularly the last six months has really shown us is that we're in a global business and the streamers understand that better than anyone. Government needs to figure out a way of proposing a good business deal that allows Canadians to also feel like our perspective will continue to matter and continue to evolve and continue to develop and our unique identity and our position in place, not only domestically but internationally, will have an opportunity to continue to thrive and be told. But that's a challenge. It's, it's, it's really easy to say. I, I understand your perspective of why won't the government take a deal at 80%. Oh, they're gonna, they've already taken a deal at 80% it's from my perspective. And I think they're going to end up somewhere around 60% by the time it's all said and done. And just one other, you know, one other point on that, which isn't about television, but it's about cinema, is the fact that you know, Canadian cinemas don't have presentation requirements in the way that Canadian radio and Canadian television have. And I think that's been a mistake. I think we need that kind of, you know, venue here as well, because that would encourage more filmmaking, because the content would be needed, the product would be needed. Distribution agreements are just wretched. They're basically saying, like, you only have to open a a theatrical film in three Canadian cities, and it's basically Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver, and everyone else can stuff it. So that is not the way to basically have our film out. And we do need independent cinema and more screens. We used to have so many independent screens, and we're down to literally two or three screens for all of us, and so that, that is where the monopoly is actually happening. Down with monopolies. Boo. 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 Thank you. Now in the back, policy. (laughs) (laughs) No, we're definitely on on the down with Monopoly front. I I think things can be so much more intrusive in digital lives than they ever were in broadcast. And so one of the areas I worry the CRTC could go, perhaps unintentionally, is if you're having the same kind of quota system or the same kind of like everything must reflect 30% CanCon in online feeds, in the playlists that are assembled for me personally based off my interests... Firstly, there just might not ever be the CanCon that fits my specific interests, but it is such a deeper cut into my life than 30% of television or radio broadcast. And I, I hope they're cognizant of that. I think I would become the Joker if 30% of what I had to listen to on Spotify was CanCon. Like, I, I genuinely, and this is, I guess, the problem, but I'm genuinely like, I would have to listen to so much broken social scene, I guess. <laughs> Um, There's a lot of Burton Cummings yeah, coming your yeah. way. Who's Kim Mitchell? What are you yeah. talking about? But 30%, no. man. I no, dream of so... television that has a 30% threshold. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze... Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Fantastic conversation. Thank you so much. We could talk about this the whole basically evening, but we do need to talk about unions. And it'll be interesting to see as there's been these new updates with C11, even just in the past couple days, where things go. But let's talk unions. So unions have been, it's been like a hot union year, I would say, in both Canada and the US. Um, Hot union summer. Hot union summer. Um, 
Yeah, we saw in Canada, we had a public sector workers strike earlier in the year. There's been a strike of city employees in New Brunswick. You know, we have TVO employees in Ontario on strike. Uh, in the US, the UAW is, is picketing. Uh, and specifically what I wanted to talk about was the Writers Guild of America and SAG-AFTRA both called strikes this year. So the WGA strike... Uh, is about to wrap up. Basically, people are back at work. Uh, the agreement's out for ratification right now by the membership. It seems like they're going to ratify it. Uh, SAG-AFTRA went on strike a little bit later. The WGA strike, I believe, started May 2nd. Oh, it definitely started May 2nd. I was literally in Los Angeles. It was horrible. Um, <laughs> and uh, SAG, I believe, started late June. That's ongoing. So, I think a lot of people have been considering these as like, these are American strikes. It's the American unions. If you work in Canada as a writer, uh, as an actor, you're not generally unionized with these unions unless you do a lot of work in the States as well. But that's not to say that there was no impact on Canada. And, you know, both in terms of there's a lot of American productions here. There are people who work in both industries, et cetera. So I want to start off uh, asking a question to Matt. From your understanding of the WGA strike specifically now that it's come to a close, uh, what were some of the wins from those strikes? I know you have some thoughts on there were provisions to protect writers against encroachment by AI was a big thing. I, uh, first, they came for the writers, and I was not a writer, so I did nothing. Um, <laughs> I... You know, I, I, I'm not a writer, and so I don't want to offer too deep of that perspective. But I, I do think what's interesting about this moment is creatives of all types are really on the leading edge of the potential job losses of AI. And we're seeing some some immediate response to that. And, and I think it's warranted. I, I as, an, as an ordinary consumer of media, I don't think we should say no to all AI creation of creative works. But I do think there's huge power and, and money distribution consequences in how this plays out. So if, if Google can sweep in all of my data, uh, all, all of my art, and use that as part of its image generation sources, that has consequences. And uh, if, if my voice can just be recorded one time by a company, they give me 200 bucks and they use it forever as, as something. That has consequences too. And so I, I'm glad that creatives are speaking up, even though I'm not sure where it's going to land in the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I guess to elucidate what some of the wins were related to AI, uh, one was to not require that writers work with AI as part of their practice. Uh, so that was something that writers were concerned about, that basically they would be required to generate things through things like ChatGPT, uh, to not require writers to basically give their content over, that AI can't be used to generate more content from things that unionized writers have written. And sort of the other concerns that you were alluding to, one of the issues in the SAG after strike as well is sort of basically background actors being scanned uh, for reuse later, things like people's voices being used uh, to have them say things that they don't say. Uh, I think we run into a lot of the same problems with these negotiations related to AI as we were talking about with sort of digital legislation earlier, that it's very difficult, uh, you know, I think on both sides to try and like set regulations and boundaries for something that's still so much in development. Uh, any other wins from the strikes that anyone else at the, we're not at a table, but at the metaphorical table wants to highlight? Can they get credited? I, I'm, I'm under the impression that that was something where if AI is used in a writer's room, it can't be credited or or can't replace a, a human writer that's working in that room. Yeah, I think there was some stuff. There was a, a bunch of stuff about minimum numbers of writers that you had to have that was set out. Because one thing that a lot of the companies have been trying to do, and especially the streamers, is to really like reduce the amount of writers in a room and have mini rooms. That was the purpose of those aspects of of the negotiation was to ensure that there was space for emerging writers in the writer's room to make sure that it wasn't a situation where, you know, a show was being written by one writer and two friends, one of whom was a mechanic in high school with him. Um, you know, so, you know, it's, it's to make sure that there's, that there was opportunity moving forward. I don't, honestly, I, I don't know if, I mean, if AI is getting a credit, I hope it's Sexytron 4000. Um, and, I mean, my only thing with AI is I just, I don't understand why we want to hand over the fun jobs to AI to give ourselves more time to what? To our taxes? It's to make money, Dennis. It's well, all about no, the money. I know why they want it. I definitely know why they so want it. So we can it. work on our tax shelters, Dennis. Yes, there we go. 
<laughs> well, I just think that we sold ourselves out long ago. You know, like basically for the longest time, we were always protecting our Canadian industry, the, the producers who are actually Canadian with Canadian ownership, etc. And then at some point, we got so much pressure from the, the, the studios to basically open up our you know, basically our resources, that we gave them tax shelters, we gave them tax credits, etc., and basically sold out our back end. So now our industry is artificially propped up by essentially American money. So when their strike happens, we all get affected. We're like a, a dead frog that's been like attached to like electrodes. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, we think it's alive, but it's actually dead. Or is it just alive in a different way? It's alive in a different way. It's opinion. dead. You're right. Yeah, <laughs> it is. The I mean, I for me, it was just how depressingly dependent the Canadian industry is on service work, you know, to, to, to what both Hayden and, and Karen are, are talking about. The Writers Guild of Canada is the only guild or union here in the industry that works if it's a Canadian show, right? Like directors have an opportunity to work on service work. Actors have an opportunity to work on service work. Our crews get to work on the service stuff. But if it's not... If it's not a, a Canadian show, the writers are just standing at the fence watching the scripts get tossed over and everybody else everybody else going to work. And so, you know, when the strikes happen down in the States and the industry all but shut down up here, right? You know, it's it's like it's like this is an opportunity for Canadian filmmakers to be making movies, for Canadian TV creators to be you know, making TV shows, you know. Uh, uh, web series, all that kind of stuff, and it just ground to a halt. Yeah, like I we so we shot a film during the strike, and it was nice because everything was available, and pe and you know all of your friends who you never could have access to now could come work on your show. All of the uh, um, all of the rental houses, etc., were available to work with you. But you're right, we're so reliant on what's happening down south that the industry ground to a halt, and I think that there is. Um, the hope and the intention behind some of the work that we're doing in C11, not to take it back to policy a bit here, but would be would be ultimately that if the streamers are feel like it makes good business sense to have meaningful relationships with Canadians, not only producers, but also through producers to Canadian writers building those writer rooms, that some of these work stoppages in other regions won't necessarily have to shut us down the same way that they currently are right now. I guess any final thoughts from any of you about just like let's broaden the scope of things we can talk about labor issues in the entertainment industry, whether it's the impact of the American strikes on Canada, whether it's labor issues within Canada, any final words of wisdom that you want to share with us, with the listeners? Yeah, I've got a thought. Uh, AI actors don't make 50 or $10,000. They make zero. And I would be pretty alarmed by that if I were an actor right now. The one idea I've heard that I think is worth considering is people have suggested that AI engines that are trained on essentially the, the corpus of human works, their output should not be copyrightable. And that would discourage companies from making as much use of those kind of sources as they might otherwise. Wasn't that already something in the States that they had? Wasn't there a court case that said that during the strike? Didn't some like AI music engine go and like make up every tune possible and they tried to copyright it? I don't know that that's going to hold up because of how power tends to work. But yeah, someone some time ago tried to generate every possible melody and then copyright all of them and then release all of them on a creative license. It's like, I can't decide whether that's good or evil because the Creative Commons license part is like, oh, okay, like, sure, I guess. Uh, it would certainly make for, I guess it would make sure there were no more of those court cases where it's like Olivia Rodrigo gets sued by Taylor Swift's legal team for having a melody that's like too similar or whatever. Hayden, final thoughts? Yeah, I, I would say that um, I think C11 is fairly unfairly, I'm not sure, it's getting a bad rap. And I think um, some issues involved with C11 are getting conflated, particularly around um, the user-generated content issue. You know, I think a lot of people are um, concerned that C11's intent is to change their YouTube algorithm. It's, it's not the primary goal around C11, I, I think. Some of the benefits and value of C11 um, largely has to do with sort of how we define ourselves as Canadian and what ultimately what we consider to be our culture and how we want to see that culture portrayed in front of us. Uh, I think one real sort of interesting way to sort of think about that is if when you sort of sit down and you think about what is it um, when you think of what is Canadian or what is Canada and what that means to you, 
if it's incredibly difficult, and and well, let me rephrase that, if it's not easy, and I'm not saying it's not reasonable, if it's not easy for your children to find themselves reflected in their media that's being delivered to them, primarily right now, over their phone devices, then everything that you think of when you think of Canadian will slowly go away. If I can respond to that, if the most important question that C11 were resolving were protecting Canadian stories and Canadian culture, I think the CRTC would have started by considering that question and not finished by considering that question. I'm not convinced. I, I do think that's an important value. I'm not convinced that's the overriding driver of C11. Whether it is or not, though, I just want to see some safeguards so it doesn't go too far, so we don't have 30% broken social scene. They're great. <laughs> I know. I love metric, too. But we need some balance in our playlists. Yeah, we need a healthy diet where I can listen to my, like, sad dad music or whatever. Like, <laughs> and not, like, sad, like, I don't know, sad, like, 45-year-old dad. It needs to be sad 60-year-old dad. And there's just not a Canadian band that quite does it for me like that. Well, I think we'll leave it off. That It's an odd note to leave off this conversation. Um, but, you know, we do need to leave it off there because I am looking at my phone and I am told that there is a movie in here at, like, 845. So we need to get out of here. Thank you so much for joining us here at the Rio Theater. I think often we forget the ways in which politics intersects with our everyday lives, like what we watch on the big screen and the medium screen. And if you're really depraved, the little screen of your phone, the TV we love, the movies we love to hate. It's important to have these conversations. So thank you so much to all of our panelists for joining us. And if you want to hear, thank you. Yes. Um, and if you want to hear more about what's going on on Parliament Hill, although it's mostly bad news, uh, tune into the backbench. Thank you so much. All right, let's adjourn. That's been the backbench. We'll talk again in two weeks when hopefully you have decided to, if you're not already a supporter, open your wallet and support Candleland this fall. Send us your questions, your concerns, and your rants. You can email us at backbench at candleland.com, and we're also on Twitter at BackbenchCast. I'm Matea Roach, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Matea Roach. Shout out to the audio teams from the Rio Theatre and the Vancouver International Film Festival for making sure that we could record this live show. This episode was produced by Aviva Lassard and Noor Azria with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofo, and our editor-in-chief is Karen Pugliese. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. If you value this podcast, support us. You'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on merch, tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis by keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. You can support us by going to candleland.com slash join. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.